All right, you may be seated. See if that worked better. All right. You take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15 together this morning. We're going to be looking at the Jerusalem Council and beginning to kind of unpack what the, uh, the early church there in Acts 15 was thinking about and discussing. But before we do anything, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful for this Lord's Day. We're just very grateful for all the things that you do for us. Father, we're grateful that in your infinite wisdom and in your infinite kindness and your infinite goodness, your love, your grace, your mercy, your faithfulness, we could go on and on and on, Lord. We're thankful that you've given us one day in seven in particular to rest. First of all, rest in you for the forgiveness of our sins, the deliverance of the power of sin and the penalty of sin, the rest of no longer being at enmity with you, but we now have peace through Christ with you, God. We're grateful. We can find rest from our labors, just our, our the weekly grind of, of making a living and just all the weariness that comes with that, God. We're thankful that this day points us forward to a greater rest to come. When you consummate your kingdom and we'll rest from the toils and tribulations and trials and the adversities and the struggles and the sickness of this world will all be gone. We're grateful for that, God. So as we sit here, Lord, and as we I've read your word and prayed your word and sang your word, God. Now, as we turn our attention to your word being preached, Lord, we humbly ask for your spirit's help. God, we know that we need your spirit to help us understand what we read. Father, we need your spirit to help us to apply what we study. Father, God, I pray for the one that's wandering today. God, I pray for the one that's far from you today. God, whether they're here in person or whether they're watching online, Father, it doesn't, doesn't matter in the sense that you know right where they're at. And even now through this prayer, God, your spirit's at work in their heart, calling them back to yourself. Father, for the one that doesn't know you as their Lord and as their Savior, God, I pray that today as the gospel is preached, that in your kindness to them, that leads them to repentance and faith in Christ. Father, may your church be built and edified. May ultimately Christ, you be exalted where you ought to be, which is the rightful head of our church. God, may you be glorified. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.
Our text this morning is going to be Acts chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. We're going to back up just a little bit contextually and read some, some verses in chapter 14, but we're going to really focus in on, on chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. And my aim really this morning is very, 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 very simple. We're going to really unpack what the Jerusalem Council, what the Antioch Church and what the Jerusalem Church you know, Paul and Barnabas representing the Antioch church. We're going to be looking at what they would have had to have wrestled with when these men came from Judea and began to teach another gospel. So we're going to look at that and we're going to look at what they would have had to wade through and the questions that would have been surfacing and how they would have had to have handled that. And in particular, we're going to focus in this morning on just one aspect of that because it's too much for me to to cover in one morning. In fact, I told Rachel we may be in chapter 15 for quite a while, um, and that's okay. But what we're gonna really focus in this morning on is biblically how a person is saved. What do the scriptures teach about salvation? What do the scriptures teach about how a person's made right with a holy God? Then we're gonna look at the implications of that for the church. And then as we're doing that, there's going to be a natural warning that's going to surface in the text for each and every one of us to be mindful of if you're in the faith of how you can lose focus of the gospel and how what was once of first importance sadly can become secondary, tertiary, or further down the line in list of importance and focus on your life. So look with me at verse 24. Again, we're going to read beginning in chapter 14, verse 24, all the way through chapter 15, verse 6. The Bible says they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together they declared all that god had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples but some men came down from judea and were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom of moses you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them. And to order them to keep the law of Moses. Verse 6. 
the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. I've mentioned this already, but let me mention it again. Historically, this is referenced or referred to rather as the Jerusalem Council, where the apostles and the elders had gathered together, really, honestly, to solve a doctrinal disagreement, a doctrinal problem, a doctrinal issue. Um, And so that's what uh, the name of this typically is called. And so when you look back to verse 28, one of the things that you'll notice is that after Paul and Barnabas had returned from their first missionary journey. We've talked about this already. They they spend some time in Antioch, and the Bible tells us there in verse 28 that they remained no little time with the disciples. We don't know how long that was, but what we do know is it would have been some period of time for them to train and equip and disciple these new believers there in Antioch. And then, as we've seen over and over and over again in the book of Acts, One challenge after another challenge after another challenge has always surfaced over and over and over again as the gospel has advanced throughout various regions. We see another challenge or another issue, if you will, or we could say, I I think, Pastor Eric, more optimistically, another opportunity, an opportunity for God to be glorified and for the church to have to resolve conflict. That's a good thing. And so the way that this unfolded, the Bible tells us in verse one of chapter 15 is There were some brothers. The Bible tells us that they were brothers that came down from Judea and they were teaching. Now, look at what they were teaching. I want you to think about this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Now, notice the comma and notice the rest of the sentence. Notice what it says. You what? You cannot be saved. Now, I think we would need to pause here for just a moment and say that this is a pretty significant statement, is it not? This is a pretty significant moment in time. This is a moment that that the church really needed to reflect on, the church really needed to think about, and the church really needed to gather together to contemplate the answer to this question. They really needed to kind of kind of figure this thing out. What is this that these men are teaching and and how is it what they're sharing squares with what the Old Testament scriptures teach and not only with what the Old Testament scriptures teach, but with what Christ taught us ourselves. Now look at what happens in verse two. Pastor Tom, it's hard for me to read verse two without thinking about you for some reason. I don't know why. (laughs) But look at Paul and Barnabas. This this has been taught and they are now we're not going to sugarcoat anything. All right. Let me put it in today's vernacular. They're fired up. They are fired up. Because when you look at the Greek and you look at the word dissension, and then you look at the word debate, there's a reason why Luke gave us two separate words in Greek that brought out two different meanings to help us understand the significance of this moment in time and to help us understand how important it is to contend for the gospel And hear me say this clearly. There are some things that should fire us up. There are. And the things that should fire us up are when the gospel is changed. We should not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. First for the Jew, then for the Greek. 
And whenever that's tampered with and whenever that's changed, it should fire us up. Now, I know that bristles against our politically correct mindset that we've inherited since the 80s. But brothers and sisters, my goodness, there should have been something inside your heart that when you read verse 2, you should have been like, whoa, wait a minute. Speak a little Okeechobee, Jim. That ain't right. Something ain't right with that. So when you look at the word dissension and you look at the word debate, not to make a mountain out of a molehill, not to strain it in that, but it's important to help you understand that Paul and Barnabas were debating. They were involved in controversy. And hear me say this, the Greek unpacks for us that this was a heated discussion. Pastor Tom, you ever had a heated discussion? <laughs> Maybe there's a little Italian blood in them somewhere, Pastor Tom. No. There was passion for the gospel that was in them. That's what it was. It wasn't about being Italian or like me. It was not about being Scottish. It's about loving Jesus and loving the gospel. And so that's what the Bible's telling us. So all of a sudden, listen, Paul and Barnabas ain't budging. They're not moving. I remember years ago, Pastor Eric... We were going through some things here at the church and we looked at each other and we said, you know what? At least we're in a battle worth fighting. You understand that statement? There are some things that ain't worth fighting about, but there are some things we need to draw swords about. There are some things we need to die over. And the gospel is one of those things. Clearly. So Paul and Barnabas, they're not budging. Of course, these other... Folks on the other side of the spectrum, they're not budging. They're not budging either. So it's a, a, a heated debate. It's a, it's a heated conversation. Now look, look what happens in verse 2. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, they're appointed by the church of Antioch to go to Jerusalem. And they're going to make their case to the apostles and the elders there in Jerusalem. Drop down with me. We've already dealt with verse 3. And, and we've already kind of just... In a previous sermon, I've already dealt with the joy and, and the conversation that they had there. So we're going to drop down to verse 4. Paul and Barnabas are welcomed by the brothers and welcomed by the apostles, welcomed by the church at Jerusalem. And then Paul and Barnabas begin to talk about the things that God had done through their ministries. Then look at verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said... Notice the language. Notice the language. It is what? It's necessary. It's necessary. Let's think about some things that American culture that are necessary. You young people that are in school that don't like school. You know what's necessary? The Department of Education says what? Tomorrow you got to go to school. Right? He said, well, I'm homeschooled. Department of Education says you still need to be schooled. Adults, think about the deadline that's coming around for filing your taxes. Right around the corner, very soon, I believe. You know what, this, you know what our great uh, nation says? It is necessary that you what? Pay your taxes. 
We give other examples. What it means is it's something that you can't get out of. It's something that you have to do. It's, it's a requirement. It's a necessity. It's necessary. There's no wiggle room. And so this is what they're teaching, that in order to be saved, they have to be circumcised. Now look at what they've added to this that's different than verse 1. They say not only is it necessary for you to be circumcised, but you also need to, what? Order them to keep the law of Moses. Well, now the question is, what are the apostles and what are the elders going to do about this? But before we go to that answer, before we begin to unpack that, I want to I just stop for a minute and I want you to think with me about what's at stake in this moment. Because it's really easy to just kind of read through and, and some of you are, are maybe like me and, and you just plow through because you just want to find the answer, right? And they're like, what did they do? Maybe you're like me and you skim read because you, you just want to find the answer to, to whatever it is. Like, oh, okay, that's cool. But I don't want us to skim read and I don't want us to move too quick. I want us to think for just a moment, like what's really at stake in this moment when these people are saying, if you really need to be saved or in order for you to be saved, rather, you must keep the law and you must be circumcised. We've got to think of what's at stake. Here's the first thing that's at stake. The glory of God. The glory of God's at stake in this moment. You say, well, well, why? Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us that it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of works, lest any of us should what? Should boast. So right here in this moment, what these people are teaching contradicts everything I just said, which everything I just said that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone as revealed in the scripture alone for the glory of God alone means that any human effort would rob God of what? His glory. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the significance of that? That's a really big thing. In fact, that may be the most important thing that's happening in this moment and happening in this text is God's glory is at stake. And so how these elders and how these apostles and how this church handles this moment is very important. Because it's primarily about God's glory. Number two, they had to preserve the truth of the gospel. That's what's at stake as well. Would the gospel be changed? Would the gospel be watered down? Would, would certain aspects of it be glossed over? Or would they preserve the truth of the gospel? Oh, hear me on number three. The next thing that's at stake is unity around the truth. Unity around the truth. And I phrased it that way for a reason. There is a cry in evangelicalism, is it not? There's a cry, even in our broader culture at large, is there not, that we all need to find unity around some sort of concept. The church for a long time has said we just need to unite around love. We need to take doctrine and just set it aside. We need to put it on the wayside. In fact, people say, well, it's because of all this doctrinal emphasis and all these denominations and all this kind of stuff that causes all the problems. Brothers and sisters, it is true, doctrine divides. As my brother Jimbo says, it divides the sheep from the goats. 
and it provides protection. But let me just say this. You can't have true unity apart from truth. You can't have true unity apart from truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about this extensively in Evangelicalism Divided as he traced out the history of this whole ecumenical movement and how people began to, to promote that we needed to have unity around love rather than unity around truth. You can't have unity apart from truth. How can you have a unity that reflects our triune God if there is no truth? Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Number four, what's at stake is this, filling the church with false converts. Well, rightly, we should say filling a worship service with false converts because the true church is always made up of genuine believers. But you get it. At the end of the day, when you change the gospel message, what that means is that you could create nothing but false converts in a gathering of people studying the word. So this is a significant moment in time. Don't miss this. God's glory is at stake. The preservation of the gospel is at stake. True conversion is at stake at some level. And unity around the truth is at stake as well. So let's think about this now. What did the, what did the Jerusalem council, what did the apostles and the elders have to think through? Well, I've already mentioned one of those things, which we're going to look at here in just a minute, is how is a person made right with God? How is a person saved? How is a person made right with the holy God? Number two, they had to figure out this. What's the meaning of circumcision? They really had to wrestle with that. There was no getting around that. That was there. That's the elephant in the room. How do we take this concept, this truth of circumcision, and what do we do with it? So we'll look at that next week, Lord willing. Number three, they also tightly connected to that, had to figure out what they were going to do with the law of Moses. Because one of the things that it said in verse 5 was we're going to order, we need to order them to keep the law of Moses. So we're going to look at that next week too. There's a lot of confusion, is there not, on circumcision? There's a lot of confusion, is there not, in our day on the law? So we need to look at it. And then also, number four, which we'll look at as well, not today, but next week, Lord willing, maybe next week. How does Christian liberty impact our understanding of the law? How does Christian liberty impact our understanding of the law? Because we've got to take that into consideration, do we not? Because, I mean, at one moment in time, we see the Apostle Paul saying salvation is by grace through faith. We don't need to be circumcised. But then a, a few years later, we see him doing what with Timothy? Having him circumcised. Huh. Is he a hypocrite? No, he's not. You're right, Bob. But we've got to figure out what's going on in that passage. It has to do with Christian liberty. There's a lot in this moment at time, right? There's a lot at stake. And there are a lot of questions, Pastor Tom, that they had to theologically wrestle with. They had to look at the scriptures. Because really all this is about is biblical interpretation and rightly applying the principles and precepts and main themes of scripture, the theology of the Old Testament to their situation and context. And we have to do the exact same thing. Think about this. Let's just say, for sake of discussion... Somebody began to teach in our church that you needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. How would we handle that? We have to do more than say that's wrong. That's the least we should do, right? But in order to rightly train and disciple and equip, we need to give the right answers biblically as to why. Because again, 
I don't understand all this. I'm not going to pretend to understand all this. But what I will say is look at verse five. But some who? Some believers. Now, the extent of all that, I don't know. But what I do know is we need to tread carefully and we need to tread lightly and we need to let God be the judge of every man's salvation and who stands before, before when, when every man stands before, before him will give an account individually. So what I'm going to say with that verse, God will handle it. He can handle it. He knows. But we can take out of this. As a church family, we may have to wrestle with questions like this and we need to give it. We need to give an answer. So let's go to Christ. Go with me to the Gospel of John. Let's go to chapter 14, verse 6. We're just going to look at a couple of things that Christ had to say as we attempt to answer this first question, how is a person saved? John 14, 6. The Bible says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now listen, I say this with much humility, but yet much boldness. There is no other way to be made right with a holy God other than through Jesus Christ. That's it. He is the only way. This is called the exclusivity of Christ. And the world hates this verse. And the world hates this doctrine. Because they really think that they're good enough. They really do think if there is a God and they stood before God, they would plead their case before this God. And somehow God would look at how good they really are and let them into heaven. But the reality is the only way to be made right with God is through Christ. Look with me at John chapter 3. Nicodemus asks a very good question that many of you may have asked. Maybe not in the same way, but he asks Christ at night about the kingdom of God. Notice what Christ says in verse three. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The word born again literally means to be born from above. You must be born of God. Christ goes on to tell Nicodemus, just like you had a physical birth, you need a spiritual birth. You had a mom who gave physical birth to you. The Heavenly Father has to give spiritual birth to you. You must be born again. There is no other way. You must be born again, born from above, born of God. Something that you do not do, it's something the Spirit of God through the preaching of the gospel quickens your dead heart and brings you to life. Go with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Look at verse 25. Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me 
shall never die. Christ is saying salvation, eternal life is found in me. Believe in me. Go with me to the gospel of Mark chapter one. You say, okay, I've got all that. Christ is the only way. I need to be born again. What's my responsibility? What am I to do? Look at verse 15. Christ says, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. Turn from being your own boss. Turn from doing your own thing. Turn from going your own way. Turn from not believing in God. Turn from rebelling against God. Turn from hating God. Turn from not giving God glory. Turn from not reading God's word. Turn from doing all of those things and turn to the God of heaven that made you, that created you, that gave you life, that gave you breath, that holds your very life in his hands that's placed me before you in this moment to tell you how you can be made right with this God, the only true God, and believe in Him. Yes, God, I believe that you're true. Yes, God, I believe that you're right. Yes, God, I believe that Christ is divine. Yes, God, I believe He lived the life that I needed to live and He died the death that I deserved. Yes, I believe that He rose again. Yes, I believe He ascended on high. Yes, I believe He's coming again. Consummate his kingdom. Repentance and faith is what's required of you this morning to be saved. My question is, what are you waiting for if you don't know him? The beautiful thing about the whosoever passages is they mean whosoever. <laughs> when you repent and when you trust Christ, you will not be turned away. He will save you. Now, go back to Acts with me, please. This is what they needed to contend for. Go to Acts chapter 4, please. In all of those verses, I want you to think about what was glaringly missing. What was glaringly missing in all of those verses, and we could look at many more verses, could we not? But what was glaringly missing is Christ never once said, Believe in me. Oh, yeah, and do something else. He never once mentioned circumcision. Circumcision. He never once said it. It's an addition. It's been added. It was added to what Christ said. Now, what I want you to think about is this. This wasn't the first time that the apostles had dealt with this issue of Jew-Gentile law, grace, salvation. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 12 of Acts. Peter and John say this, and there is salvation where? In no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This was the preaching of the apostles as well. It matched the preaching of Christ. Christ says, if you want to be made right with God, you must come through me. And the apostles were saying, if you want to be made right with God, you must come through Christ. There's no other name. Nowhere. 
Not Buddha, not Muhammad. Nobody, nowhere. Not the governments. Nobody, nowhere. Only Christ. Fast forward with me to chapter 11. Because one of the things that we'll notice is there always needs to be a contending for the faith. They say in chapter 4, verse 12, there's no other name under heaven by which a man must be saved. But when we come to chapter 11, one of the things that we notice is a contention over that truth. After Peter has gone and ministered to the Gentiles, look at verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, notice the text. The circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised, uncircumcised men and ate with them. There's a direct connection between chapter 11 and chapter 15. This issue has been surfacing and, and bubbling for a while. And it, it kind of comes to the surface in greater light in chapter 15. But the church has already dealt with this because when you drop down and we've studied this already. Notice verse 15. Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, look. And if then God gave them the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, now listen, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You say, well, big deal, so what? Here's the big deal. So what? The church always has to contend for the truth of the gospel. There are no days off. We're always contending for the truth of the gospel. Think about it. Acts four. What are they saying? Salvation is in Christ alone. Chapter 11. What are the Judaizers saying? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't know. We need to be thinking about this circumcision thing. And what did Peter say? No, 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 no. The Gentiles were saved just like we were. God has granted them repentance that leads to life. And then you fast forward to chapter 15. And what are you seeing again? Wait a minute. No, 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 no. They're getting more bold, are they not? No, 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 no. If you're going to be saved, you not only need to profess Christ, but you also need to be doing some kind of a human work. It's interesting. I remember listening to an older pastor one time say, this pastor's probably in his 80s now, still preaching. And he said, I didn't understand when I was a young pastor, when I was a young man, when I first went to my church. He's been at the same church for like 50 years, which is pretty awesome. He said, I never understood as a young man that my whole ministry would be about contending for the truth of the gospel. He said, that's what it's been. The whole 50 years... What it's been about is proclaiming the truth of Christ, defending the truth of Christ, and preserving the truth of the gospel. Think about the staggering reality of that statement. And think about what we just read in chapter 11. They set the record straight. No, salvation is by Christ alone. Then you get to chapter 15. What are they having to do again? They're going to have to set their record straight again. It's interesting. It's interesting. 
Remember what Jude said in chapter 1, verse 3? I really wanted to write to you about other things. But what did I have to write to you about? The gospel. You remember what Paul told the Galatian church in chapter 1, verse 6? I can't believe you're turned so quickly away from the truth of the gospel and you're following another gospel that's not a gospel at all. Because even if I preached you another gospel, and even if I said something to you that was other than what Christ delivered to me, we should all be anathema. We should all be accursed. We should all be cut off from the hope of salvation because it's not the truth of the gospel. Remember what he told the Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 3? I delivered to you of what was first importance. That Christ lived, that Christ died according to the scriptures, and that Christ was raised according to the scriptures. What did Paul say? What's primary What's of first importance for every local church? The gospel. Why? Because what they believe about the gospel reveals what they believe about God. And I can say the same thing in reverse. What you believe about God will reveal to me what you believe about the gospel. So important. So important. We have to maintain focus. I thought about this, Pastor Jim, you know. When you read the New Testament, one of the crazy realities of the New Testament is not only are the, these churches planted, but how fast they lost focus. I mean, you think about the church at Corinth I just quoted from. I mean, Paul planted that church. Paul was their father in the faith. And then when you read the Corinthian letters, what are they doing to Paul? They're attacking him. Why? They've lost the gospel. Not only are they attacking Paul, but they're attacking one another. That's the most divided and, and, and most dissension-filled church that we have in the New Testament. It's crazy. It's sad. But what does Paul bring them back to? The gospel. What's the answer for their problem? The gospel. I thought about Pastor Tom, the church, the churches of Galatia. And I've already quoted from Galatians chapter 1. How they had, had turned from the true gospel and begun to follow another gospel didn't take long. That's scary. Didn't take long. The apostles were still alive. It's the first generation, so to speak, where the apostles, they're still around. It didn't take long. Thought about the church of Ephesus. Go with me to Revelation chapter 2. I think we all love the book of Ephesians for various reasons. We certainly love chapter 1 and chapter 2 especially and we think about the church at Ephesus and we think, man, what a solid church they must have been. They, they got their doctrine right. They got their beliefs right. They, got their, they were orthodox. Well, remember what I've told you before. Be careful of dead orthodoxy. We're called to have a, lot, a living faith, a vibrant relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your work, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Pretty awesome stuff, amen? That's a pretty, pretty awesome thing that God would say about us, but he's not done, is he? Look at verse 4. To the church at Ephesus, 
Ephesus, he says, but I have this against you that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. If we're honest together this morning, the song that we sang just a few minutes ago, my heart is prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love is true, is it not? It's by grace that we're kept. It's not by you that you're kept. It's by God's grace that you're kept. Dr. Lawson, Steve Lawson says that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is really about God's persevering work of the Spirit in you. We need to learn. If the church at Corinth could drift, if the church at Galatia could, Galatian churches could drift, if the church at Ephesus, for crying out loud, could drift, I don't think we're made of different stuff, amen? I think we're made of the same stuff. The reality is we also can drift. If you went to the Old Testament, you would notice that the people of God drift. Go to Judges chapter 2. I know this is tarrying long, but go to Judge, Judges chapter 2. Not only did the New Testament saints drift, but God's people in the Old Testament did as well. Look at Chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, let's back up, actually. Get, we'll just go to verse 6 so it'll make more sense. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went to each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders out, who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Ares and the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Now listen. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the bells. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the bells and the Ashtaroth. Wow. It's amazing. Didn't take long, did it? Didn't take long. We could go to the modern missions movement and think about Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission, when he began to preach in China, one of the things that the Lord convicted him of was to, to do away with his English dress and attire and to look more like the Chinese people that God had sent him there to reach. So he began to, to dress like them and it's interesting, he got a lot of criticism for that. The English people said, the English missionaries that were on the field, that were there supposedly to reach the people, were critical of Hudson Taylor because he looked too much like the people he was going to reach. What has happened? Somewhere along the way, it became more about tradition than it did about the gospel. We could fast forward Pastor Eric and Pastor Jim and Pastor Tom. You probably remember this conversation that you and I had or the, the four of us had one time with a church planning strategist from the Florida Baptist Convention. 
And he told us this. He had planted a church and he said, our church's thing, our church's thing is human trafficking. He said, basically, our church exists to get rid of human trafficking. Now, do we need to get rid of human trafficking? Absolutely. It's a bad thing. But does the church exist for human trafficking? No. No. Not at all. What had happened is he had led his church to be more concerned about a movement, a social reform movement that needs to happen in our culture for sure. But it's not the purpose of the church. Our church should be about preaching the gospel. It's the gospel that changes human traffickers from God-hater idolaters to God-lovers and not involved in human trafficking. And the church has gotten caught up in this over and over and over again, getting so caught up in political reform or social reform to the neglect of the gospel. That's what's happening in the social justice movement right now. The church is far too concerned with social justice rather than just preaching the gospel. If you want to unite people of all races and all economic background, regardless of where they're from, Christ has a good strategy for that already. Preach Him crucified. He has a way of uniting people. And that uniting of people causes people to treat people rightly. Social reform has never been the answer. Be careful that you're not living for social movements. You should be living about the gospel. And take the gospel where you go and it will transform every part of society. The problem we have is we want to be smarter than God. And God has already said, this is what you need to do. Preach Christ crucified. Now, let me end with this. It didn't take long for the Galatian churches to drift. It didn't take long for the Corinth church to drift. It didn't take long for the Ephesus church to lose their first love. It didn't take long for the people in the Old Testament after Joshua to drift and to fall into major idolatry. There's a warning for us, is there not? Here's my final application. In the form of a question. How much do you really pray for Everglades Baptist Church? And what I mean by that is, how much do you pray for the generations that you'll never see in this church? Not only you, not only your children, not only your grandchildren, but I'm talking about the generations that will come after you that you'll never see. One quick story. We're studying the 1689 Confession, and as I was prepping for that first initial lesson on church history and the SBC starting and our doctrinal commitments back then, I read some about the First Baptist Church of Charleston in South Carolina that was integral in the formation of a lot of churches in the South, and it was integral in the formation of the SBC. And one of the sad things that I found after having read about their, their heritage and their roots is when I went to the present day and I was kind of looking at their website and I was like, hmm, I wonder where they're at today. You know what I found? They're not where they once were. The SBC was founded in 1845. This is 2022. The people in 1845 never, have never seen the people in 2022, correct? 
But somehow, some way, the church has lost its way there. And I say that with much humility and much grace. But I also say that knowing if we're not praying, the same thing could happen to us here. Could it not? And I don't know about you, but I think about this from time to time. And it's my heart's desire that this church, Everglades Baptist Church, for however long God sees fit for it to exist, be a church where Christ is the head, the gospel is proclaimed, and we stand on the word of God. Amen? We've got to think that it's bigger than us. It's about the generations that are coming after us as well. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for this passage of scripture. I pray for the one that has heard the gospel. Maybe they're wrestling in their heart, God. I pray that they'll respond to your call right now in repentance and faith. I pray for the rest of us to be serious about contending for the faith and preserving the truth. Father, I also pray that you put it in our hearts, God, to begin to pray on a regular basis for those generations that we'll never see, that will long outlive us. God, I humbly ask that in your kindness and in your grace and in your favor, as long as you see fit, Everglades Baptist Church will be a lighthouse for truth, regardless of the cultural pressure. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand your feet as we close by worshiping the Lord with a song. Okay, so our last song we're going to sing is about the five solas, um, the Reformation song.